Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 83 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 83, we are going to talk very briefly about the meet that is coming up in just a handful of days, PNW District Meet number three. We're going to provide a rulebook project update or the rulebook rewrite project update and actually talk about some of the feedback that we've been receiving from the districts, uh, which is fantastic. We love feedback. And then we're going to spend some time, probably the bulk of the uh, episode, talking about something that we mentioned a little bit and had some uh, fun discussions on in the Inside Quizzing Slack channel, uh, that being of quizzing heresies. And we'll talk a little bit about what quizzing heresies are. Uh, Heresies are things that are not just bold ideas necessarily, but things that sort of go against the grain of sort of traditional uh, quizzing and quizzing sort of mentality and so forth. So we'll be talking some of those about some of those ideas. Some are good, some are bad, some are questionable if they are good or bad, uh, but we'll kind of go through some of those in some detail. So it should be a lot of fun. All right. So starting things off, PNW District Meet number three, it is upcoming. So Scott and I are recording this episode on Monday the 11th and the quiz meet will be starting on the 15th. So like what, four days from now or something like that. It starts at 6 o'clock p.m. Uh, Pacific Standard Time or Best Time Zone BTZ uh, if you prefer, which I do. Uh, it'll be Friday and Saturday, January 15th and 16th. I don't recall the exact study material side of things, but I'm going to look it up real quick. Uh, we'll be uh, quizzing through Matthew 18, and 50% of the material is going to be from Matthew 14 through 18. So that's uh, Friday starting at 6. Saturday will start at 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, Jeremy Swingle is going to be our devotion speaker, so that's going to be awesome. Very much looking forward to uh, hearing what uh, Jeremy has for or as has prepared for us. And we'll probably conclude early afternoon, as is our tradition after a break for lunch. Cuddy is also going to be putting together some quizzer activities, quizzer games that will be uh, sprinkled throughout the the weekend. So very much uh, looking forward to that and very excited about that as well. And Scott, you're you're doing uh, stats too, right? I'm doing stats and one document that I have not produced yet, but I, I could if it was desired, but I, I don't know that anyone has ever read it in the past and I don't know that they would read it this year, but it is easy to calculate which quizzers stand to gain the most from PNW's Meet 3. So the way that PNW does our individual stats is among your first three meets, you get to completely drop and not count the worst one. Well, we don't know which one that is until the three meets are done. But based on your first two, it is very easy to see which quizzers have the most to gain. And it's going to be the quizzers that had a really big difference between their two meets thus far. Um, so that's something I would, that's the kind of thing that I would always produce for me because I found it interesting. And I would then track quizzers throughout the meet if one of them had like a 65 at a meet and then missed the other meet um, just to see how they're doing. Because if they can drop that zero, that would be amazing. Yeah, that's a, that sounds very, very cool. Um, well, so that's um, Friday and Saturday. I'm going to be one of the quiz masters. It's actually going to be the, the standard three, um, Daniel, David, and myself. And I forget exactly what the room, room assignments are. Um, this year, I've been trying to scramble us around a little bit. So we're not always in the same room in the same positions and so forth. So we're trying a little bit of variety there. So I forget where people are lined up, but it'll be basically different than what we've done the last previous two meets, uh, just because of, you know, the scrambling of the situation. So yeah, that's coming up and that'll be a lot of fun. And so moving on, let's talk a little bit about the rulebook project. Um, We've been mentioning that the last few episodes and the status of things. It is currently out to all of the districts now. Uh, It's been out for, what, a a week now, I think? Is that right? Wasn't it? Has it been a week or was it, it wasn't like three days ago? Oh, maybe it was. You're right. Maybe it was Wednesday. It was sometime last week, but it was, um, yeah, maybe it was Tuesday or Wednesday. So maybe it's been less than a week, but yeah, it's been, it's out to the districts now. Um, we've received some review, uh, and some comments, um, that's starting to, to trickle in from a couple of folks, which is great. And, and certainly, you know, it's a, you know, it's not a tiny project. There's a lot to read through, um, but we very much encourage anyone and everyone who is even mildly curious about the rule book uh, to please take a peek at it. 
Um, if you need uh, references to links of where to go, uh, please give us a, a chat in uh, in the quizzing Slack, uh, in the Inside Quizzing channel, or email us, iq at cbqz.org. We'll, we'll forward you uh, Zach's really awesome email about where to go and what to see and so forth so that you can participate in the discussion process. So um, we are currently in the final phase of this uh, of the rulebook project. This is the ratification at the district level, so districts get an opportunity to review things and say whether they agree or disagree with different stuff and provide feedback and so forth that you know will will be responsive to and and uh, answer questions and that kind of stuff and potentially even make changes based on what people uh, are finding and so forth. So. With that said, I, I want to kind of quickly go through some of the feedback that we've received thus far. It's not much, um, but to kind of keep everybody in the loop. One, the first one, uh, there was a, a mention under eligibility requirements where the rulebook that, uh, that's currently out for review says the following. All quizzers for internationals competition must be 12 to 18 years of age at any point during the quiz season. Each quiz season begins on August 1st and ends on July 31st. And so that's what's in the, 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 this new rule book that's going out for ratification. And somebody replied and asked, you know, under the eligibility section, it happens to be 7.1. But anyway, um, it states that a quizzer must be from those ages. Does that mean that a university student is allowed to quiz if they fall into this age group? Uh, yes, we've had our first and second year university students wanting to quiz. So, um, Scott, do you want to respond to this one? Yeah. So, um, under the, the existing rule book, it says eligibility is quizzers for international competition must be 12 to 18 years of age by the meet registration date or have been enrolled as a full-time high school student during the current quiz year. Well, as the rewrite committee was examining this, we were fairly uncomfortable with the applicability um, and objectivity of full-time high school student, um, as there is a lot of gray area and lack of definition around what would constitute a full-time high school student in the world of homeschooling and running start. And I don't know if there's an equivalent in Canada. Um, and so we just decided to use the pure 12 to 18 years of age. Um, and we did not use by the meet registration date. We just said during the quiz year. Um, and so currently as written, it does not prevent someone who is between 12 and 18 years of age, but also a college student from quizzing. So the current rulebook doesn't prevent that. Um, and the rewritten rulebook also doesn't prevent that, but it does, it does shine light on how, um, tough it can be to write requirements on eligibility. And so this is a place where we would love feedback. This is probably not something that will be reviewed for the initial rewrite because the initial rewrite is just a clearer matching of what exists already. And so introducing any additional language like cannot be a college student, that would be a big change. Um, or at least it would be a change. And so that would happen in future versions. But if people have thoughts and feelings about what they think the point of eligibility is. Um, like, is it more for um, the logistics of running a meet and having some expected range of maturity levels, like not five-year-olds, not 40-year-olds competing um, or attending meets? Um, so is it more about the logistics and kind of the maturity and the interactions? Or is it more about competitive balance, right? Like you wouldn't want a 25-year-old um, competing against a 10-year-old, probably not. Um, but it would be interesting to see what people find most important about the eligibility requirements because part of part of this rulebook rewrite is that anyone can propose something and if there is wide enough agreement by by people, it gets changed. And so um, it's, a, it's a process where you don't have to have a certain role to propose a change and all of the proposed changes and discussion on them is public, so anyone has a chance to read them. And I think that those are very healthy, um, very healthy things going forward. Where there's nothing um, difficult to learn about how to propose a change if there's something that you care about, and the deliberations and discussions are had out in the open. Yeah, and those are all very good things. The other thing to keep in mind is that this rule book, uh, specifically this section, talks about internationals competition. Uh, eligibility requirements, um, but really not just here, but everywhere within the rulebook, districts are free to do 
anything they want. I mean, if if there's a, you know if if you're at a district where you're you're like no, we really don't want to have twelve and thirteen year olds involved in quizzing for whatever reason, uh, you know you might have you can absolutely limit it uh, and do it differently. If you want in your district to say you know what we really do want ten year olds to be involved in quizzing. Uh, if you can handle it and you think it's a good idea for your district, you have every, you know, capability of doing that. It's just that the 10 and 11 year olds won't be eligible for internationals. Um, that's really the limitation here. So, you know, districts certainly still have every bit of freedom to do anything that they want locally. Um, but certainly we want to, since we're coming together jointly, uh, at internationals, we want to make sure that we have something that works for everyone, uh, everyone's district. And, you know, pragmatically speaking, the, the reality of the situation is that a lot of districts just use the, you know, the, the one source rule book and they don't make local changes. So we want to have something that works for internationals that everybody can agree to. We also want something that by and large theoretically ought to work at the district level without any changes, even though districts are free to, you know, make those changes. So the, um, the next one kind of similar, uh, came up. This was from section 2.1 under team organization and, and the, the way it's written right now in the rule book, it says a team can, can, okay, maybe I can talk now. A team can consist of up to five quizzers and teams can have up to four quizzers seated in a quiz at any given time. And the comment that we got back, it said the maximum numbers, uh, the maximum number of quizzers on a team is mentioned, but there's no mention of a minimum. Uh, so Scott, what do you think about this one? Yeah, so again, um, one thing that we definitely did was there is no longer, well, there is a section specific to internationals, but it doesn't deal with things like team size or eligibility. We just, we made that full rule book things and um, the items specific to internationals are like quite specific around, um, I think there was something about the question set and maybe... Um, other things about how the meet is structured, but nothing about like eligibility or team size. Um, and so what the rule book currently says talks about teams with a maximum of five members, four on the stage. And so we just moved that right over to our rewritten rule book, didn't change anything. And in the current rule book, there's no mention of team size minimums. So because we're aiming for functional equivalence, we didn't introduce any definition of team size minimums. Now, we are aware that some districts have local rules, which basically enforce um, either a minimum team size, or I believe one district allows only the minimum number of four-person teams um, from like a church uh, and so, like, again, districts are completely free to do whatever they want locally, but at the um, international level, which is – so this rulebook is def defined for quizzing in general, but it's only able to be enforced for internationals, right? Because districts, again, can do whatever they want. It's kind of a weird way to say it, like, this rulebook can't be enforced at the district level. Um, it's almost like a, a reversal. Really, it's just districts, if they would like to override it, they are welcome to. Um, but – the goal of functional equivalence is why we did not introduce any team size minimums because that would be new and it would be a change. Now, again, just like the eligibility, if there is a desire for team size minimums to be a rule stated in the rule book, um, someone can totally raise that issue and it can be discussed upon during the open uh, period and um, then it would move on from there. So um, it would follow a much similar process. Yeah. So one of the things you, you're talking about raising an issue, and we should talk about how to raise an issue. There are a number of ways to raise an issue. The one very simple way is is uh, on the GitHub project for the rulebook. You can just go to the issues uh, list and you can file a new issue. It's, it's just a form. Uh, you, you need a title and some kind of description. Uh, certainly, the more articulate you are in writing your description, the better. But really, anything sufficient to get your idea across is great. And that just immediately goes into the list of issues uh, or topics that, that the future rulebook committee will be addressing in, say, version two. So you'll be able to get your, your thoughts in there. Um, but if GitHub is daunting for you, you can send an email, you can give us a phone call, um, any means by 
which you can communicate to either the CQLT or uh, the folks that were on the uh, rulebook committee for version one. If you get us, you know, contact any one of us or all of us uh, with your feedback, we can uh, take action on those things, uh, either by filing a, an issue on your behalf or by, you know, noting your comment somewhere within the, the pull request or, or in, in any number of different ways that we can incorporate your, con uh, your content. So we certainly want to you know, solicit as much feedback as possible. And we want to encourage folks to be reading through uh, this, this rule book and, and trying to try to find spots where we messed up. So one, uh, one spot where it was, I think this is a, a really great catch. One reviewer was uh, reading this rule book over the weekend and, and emailed today and said, was it intentional to not have descri a description of what a finish the verse or quote question should be? Uh, and I'll explain what that means in a second. Uh, that opens up uh, the possibility that any verse at internationals could be a finish the verse or quote. And what they're referring to here is the, the notion of uh, verses that are eligible to be quotes or finish questions need to be strong enough to stand on their own and spiritually significant. And those concepts, uh, well, they still exist in our best practices document, but they don't exist in the actual rule book itself, the core nature of the rule book. We moved them from the core nature of the rule book into this sort of separate best practices document. So they still exist, but they're not part of the core rules. And so does that mean that versus that are not necessarily spiritually significant or not necessarily strong enough to stand on their own, does that mean they can become finish the verse or quote questions? And the answer is, well, really, no, they shouldn't be. Um, they really, the verses really still should be strong enough to stand on their own and should still be uh, spiritually significant, but we could not figure out a way in version one of including those two phrases in the core rulebook in a way that was both functionally equivalent to the existing rulebook and was objective because both of those statements are highly subjective, right? What does spiritually significant mean? It's sort of like, well, I'll know it when I see it sort of stuff, right? And, you know, to Scott's point, the, uh, from before, the idea of something being spiritually significant, it's easy to say, well, every verse in scripture is spiritually significant. Well, sure, every verse works together for spiritual significance, but by the nature of certain verses being able to stand on their own, and being spiritually more significant than others, right? Um, by by even making those statements, we're basically declaring that that's possible. And so, you know, how do we how do we judge what is and is not spiritually significant? And that what ru runs us into all kinds of subjective territory. And so we we did discuss this. We tried to figure out how to resolve this, and we couldn't really figure out a way to do it under functional equivalence. So we basically punted the issue until version two. So essentially in version one, because we wanted to make sure that we, we maintain functional equivalence, we basically don't have that language in the core rule book. It's still part of the best practices document. It's still something that we should strive for. Uh, and then in version two, where we are not necessarily bound by functional equivalence anymore, we can actually address this and potentially have some sort of objective criteria uh, or at least at minimum, some sort of commentary uh, to cover this sort of uh, topic. So I don't know, Scott, do you have any thoughts on this one? I think you summed it up, but the reason that it was moved to the best practices is that like, it is a best practice that should be followed, but its movement there is an acknowledgement of how subjectively it's currently written. So I know of quiz masters at interdistrict meets who... Um, basically decided that they wouldn't entertain any challenges about spiritual significance because they were uncomfortable with the subjectivity and like how they would apply it versus potentially a different quiz master on this, uh, how they would apply the same subjective language. And I think that that's the right approach for a quiz master in a quiz to take. And, and if that's going to be the approach that a quiz master is going to take and I know of multiple that took that approach, then it's clear that it shouldn't exist in the rule book because everything in the rule book is intended to be there so and like be up for challenge if its application is not correct. And if we do, if it's not written in an objective enough way that 
um, experienced quizmasters are comfortable saying whether it was applied correctly or not, then it's clear it, it doesn't belong, at least not right now, right? And so this is this is something where um, it can be decided on in the future whether it best remains as a best practice that you would love question writers to follow. Um, much like many other things in quizzing that um, we really want to have happen but are really difficult to challenge, right? Like a lot of good quiz mastering hinges on um, consistency of reading and at a conversational pace. Well, you might not find that always, but that's very difficult to challenge, right? Because um, there's no clear standard that you're talking about, and that's the same thing here. Um, and so I think this very clearly lays the groundwork for the discussions of do we want to try to craft objective enough language so that it is in the rulebook and is challengeable? Or do we think that that is problematic enough that we want to leave it as a best practice and it's never open for challenge, which at least sets that clear expectation, right? Right. All right. So like, as we mentioned, uh, if you have any feedback or disagreements or really we, we just, we want to encourage as many people as possible to read the new rule book. Um, certainly there isn't going to be, we hope there isn't going to be anything in there that's going to change quizzing in any kind of noticeable way. Uh, but we need your help to spot it. We need you to try to find any flaws in our thinking or in our language or in any other part of the rule book. So please participate if you have the opportunity to do so. All right. And with that said, we'll move on to the exciting and interesting topic of quizzing heresies. So this is, you know, to be fair, this is a little bit tongue in cheek, certainly uh, when we're talking about heretical uh, sort of notions when it comes to quizzing. We're not talking about anything uh, in terms of Christian doctrine that would be heresies or, or what we would traditionally use the word heresy for. But rather, we're talking about things in quizzing, things that we do uh, that are sort of considered traditions important to us. And when somebody uh, rejects those or tries to change them, we kind of, or the idea of changing those things, we say like, wow, that's, that's, that's crazy. That that's feels like a heretical content, a, a bit of content or concept there where, and I want to separate out the difference between something that we're calling a quizzing heresy and something that is a just a bold quizzing idea, right? There are a lot of ideas that are very bold in quizzing. So the rulebook rewrite is one is a, a very bold idea, right? We're completely starting from scratch with a rulebook and rewriting it uh, word for word everywhere, uh, not word for word translating, but literally rewriting the rulebook and reforming it, the functionality of it, the structure of it. Uh, it's a very bold project, but it's not a heresy uh, because rewrites of the rulebook have you know happened in the past maybe not to the same degree or extent of what we've been doing here but they've they've happened right um heresies are a bit different it's almost like if uh you were to hear a heresy your initial reaction would be one of sort of i don't know almost like an emotional negative reaction to it kind of like like balking at the idea uh before thinking about it a bit so we wanted to kind of go through some of these ideas uh some of them are are you know i think scott and i think are good um there are some of these quizzing heresies that i think actually i'm pretty sure both scott and i think are bad uh, maybe there's some of them where scott and i will disagree about the goodness or the badness of, of some of these heresies but let's kind of jump in so the first one and I think we've talked, actually, I'm pretty sure we've talked about this before, uh, but it's definitely a quizzing heresy is the notion of switching from seats to push button for quizzing. So the idea of instead of having either pads or benches, we use push buttons. Uh, so you uh, sort of like Jeopardy, every quizzer would have a little push button and you push the button when you want to jump, quote unquote. And of course, we couldn't call it jump because nobody would be jumping anymore. Um, but that's the idea. And it definitely feels like heresy. Uh, there's a lot of folks, probably the vast majority of folks who feel like, you know, having seat jumping is really integral. It's a really special part of what quizzing is. And to, so to, to switch that to push button is somewhat heretical in that it sort of, uh, underpins or it, or it removes the underpinning of what a, a certain part of quizzing's uniqueness is all about. So Scott, what are your thoughts about this one? I think it would be 
I think it is correctly defined as a heresy because it evokes a very emotional reaction. Um, and I think I would hazard a guess that um, more people would be against the idea of push-button quizzing than would be for it. Um, but I think that there are some very, very compelling arguments. I think the logistics gains are massive. Um, I know one thing that you have said is if we were if quizzing didn't exist and we were designing it from scratch, the chances that we pick um, some jump seat system like we have now are basically zero percent. <laughs> like if we were starting fresh from nothing, there is no chance that we would choose the current system. Um, and so I think really it's just going to be the people that wouldn't want to switch would be a lot of um, nostalgia and tradition built up from their experiences, right? And I think if the logistics weren't any factor, um, I, I'd i like quizzing via jumping. I think it is it is unique. It's not the only unique thing about quizzing, and it's probably not the most unique thing about quizzing. But I would see no reason to switch if there weren't so many logistical upsides. Talk about some of the logistical upsides. I mean, there, certainly cost is one factor, but I mean, probably not the biggest factor, right? Well, so I would start with cost, right? So first off, benches are very expensive. And while I do not think it takes much time to adapt to benches from from pads, um, there are many districts or at least I don't know if there are many, but I know that there are districts and definitely church programs that do not own benches. And so whenever they do get to quiz on benches, be it at their district meets or only at a meet like Great Western Internationals or only at a meet like Internationals, some amount of um, adaptation is required, getting comfortable with it. And so that's just an advantage that a district would have who just has benches for whatever reason, right? Um, and so the, the extreme cost of extreme extreme is probably too strong but like benches are expensive um, how, how and, expensive i mean what's sort of a, a if i'm going to buy a set of benches what's sort of my expected outlay um because they are heavy the transportation cost or shipping cost would be a large part of it um but i think somewhere in the neighborhood of 1500 to 2000 dollars united states for a room's worth of benches yeah versus say um, a set of pads is like what 300 500 300 300 to 500 and then add on top like benches break and so you need someone who can fix them and especially with benches if you can't fix them immediately they're not like cheap enough to just have backups on backups whereas with pads it is a little more feasible but even with so like with benches they will fail at some point in time and either components or the entire thing will need to be replaced same with pads right pads and or consoles um, will fail over time and need to be replaced. Um, equipment from quiz time will probably need to be replaced at a slower rate than Acme equipment or other equipment. Um, but there's still a rate of failure, especially on pads, because the design is the same, right? It's They're connected via wires. And even though they have protective housing, that's the most delicate part because they're moved, they're twisted, they're wrapped, they're yanked, right? Consoles probably have a much longer shelf life. Um, and so there's the cost aspect to all of it. But then there's there's more. So like with benches, transporting them is a big deal because one team's worth of benches, so it's four connected seats that fold up, but it's still like two feet by four feet, and I, I think they might be 60 pounds, maybe 80 pounds. I'm not really sure. And so they're not trivial. Like you can't just – if you have seven people in a minivan, you cannot fit three benches in there, um, like maybe barely with no luggage. And so – I mean, when we host a Great West, we asked um, the two Canadian districts if they could bring benches, and they were happy to, but they would bring a bus and put the benches underneath the bus, you know? And if unless that's your, your mode of transportation, you kind of need to have it figured out um, how to transport them. And so transportation is a big deal with benches. That is not a big deal with pads, right? The boxes are small that they can pack down into. But with pads, because you don't have an integrated um, – seat system you need to have chairs and the way pads are designed where it's kind of they're called pads right they're padded with a button in them any seat that has any padding on them makes it very problematic to be used with um pads because then there's a give in the seat that makes you imprecise with when you can trigger your light so as a result you got to use hardtop chairs um chairs that have any sort of bowl or cupping to them 
Um, those are also problematic when you're trying to sit on something and make sure your light is triggered and know right when you when you release it. And guess what kind of chairs you find in churches these days? It's ones that are either padded or have kind of a bowl because they're comfier. Um, and you just don't find metal folding chairs. You don't find chairs with a hard top. You don't find chairs with a flat top. Um, and so that's also um, a complicating factor. Another one with benches is how large they are when spread out. So the legs kind of, um, you pull them out at an angle. And so, boy, I don't know how how wide a single bench is. It could be eight feet, nine feet. And so three of those you know, like can limit the rooms that you pick. And we've been in churches where there's kind of, I don't know if you've seen churches where um, at the front of the sanctuary, there's almost um, a barrier that either is between the last pew and the steps up to um, a stage, or sometimes it's part of the stage, and sometimes it goes up the sides of the stage because there's a choir well. Well, that can prevent you from putting benches at the front stage of a church um, just because of how wide they spread out. And so, like, all of those together, so there's cost, there's the fact that they will fail at some point in time. Um, benches are really hard to transport. Um, for pads, it's hard to find chairs, and for benches, it limits the rooms that you can use. It's just a lot of things, a lot of logistical things that you're figuring out, if, especially if you're running a meet. Um, you need to figure out if you run a church program because you have to run practices, um, and it's just it's a lot, right? And all, almost all of those immediately go away if you use push-button quizzing. Yeah, that's very true. Um, I mean, the other thing that I sort of keep in mind is at all levels of quizzing from, you know, your church level through districts all the way up into internationals, if somebody has some sort of either, you know, disability or is, uh, you know, temporarily, you know, they've, they've, they've got a, a broken foot or, you know, they've got a, a knee that that's, you know, had surgery and they it's in a, a brace or something like that. We don't even blink we 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 have zero hesitation in saying yeah you can either foot jump or you can even hook up a quiz a, a, a quizzer at internationals this past or well not this past year but two years ago in orlando um she needed a a a, a push button uh device and so you know we would hook her push button device up into the console systems that we were using in each room. And she just took her push button button device with her. There was zero blinking of that. Like, like there was zero hesitation, zero concern about that uh, activity at all. We were, you know, universally totally okay with the idea of saying, yeah, somebody isn't able to use uh, uh, the, the bench for whatever reason, absolutely use a, a push button device or, you know, a pad on the floor with your foot or whatever it is uh, to, you know, have that person be able to participate in quizzing. Right. And under, I would say, I think this is true. And let me know if you think it's not true, Scott, but I would say it's undeniable that somebody who has a push button is very, very slightly advantaged over somebody who has to physically jump, be that either pads or seats. Do you think that's true? I do, right? Like our fingers are probably among, I mean, there's a reason we use our hands predominantly for fine motor skills, right? Um, and yeah, I, they're just far more precise and nimble and dexterous, and all of those things are a slight, slight advantage in quizzing when um, you want to know exactly when you trigger your light. I mean, that's why quizzers often prefer benches over pads is because the bench will click when you trigger your light, so you have some amount of feedback, whereas with pads, you kind of need to grab a console and practice so you know what movements do it. But if you're like have your finger on even a quiz pad or a quiz bench, like you can be very assured when you're going to trigger it. Right. Um, so yeah. Right. And I'm thinking like, you know, a push button where, you know, it's a very, very light button. It's not like a hard button. It's a very light button. And there's, there's a, there's both an audible click and a sort of uh, not loud, but there's definitely a clicking sound. There's also a, a feel to it where like, you know, you put a little bit of pressure on it and it, then it kind of clicks and depresses and you can feel that kind of movement. To me, that's going to give a much more accurate jump than say a, a, a bench or a seat. And yet we don't have any problems at all using that if somebody either has a disability or, you know, an injury or something and they can't use a bench or a pad. 
Uh, so to me, it's kind of, this definitely falls into this sort of heresy where the idea of saying, yeah, but we can't, we can't take the district to push button because, well, that just, it, it, it's different. It's not good because it's different. Uh, definitely feels like a heresy to me. Well, so let's move on to another one. Um, one we've talked about a little bit before, um, but actually let's do two of these together here. Um, sort of death to multiple answer questions. So like basically doing away with the multiple answer question type. We've talked about this a little bit before, uh, but that's something that, you know, a lot of people love multiple answers, but in this day and age with how few multiple answers we have right now, and certainly... I would be in favor of increasing the number of multiple answers we have. Um, but given how few multiple answers we have, uh, is it not? And, and, you know, that also combined with the fact that the definition of what is and isn't a multiple answer is, well, it can be subjective. I don't think it really is. I think there can be objective ways of clarifying it, but there can be some confusion around what is and is not a multiple answer. Should we consider, uh, the idea or, or is the, idea of considering to eliminate multiple answers as a question type is it a quizzing heresy and is that heresy good or bad and then let's also talk about xyz's uh some districts uh, ibq uses xyz's great west uses xyz's pnw does not use xyz's um are they a good thing are they a bad thing is talking about removing xyz's a, a heresy so scott what are your thoughts about these two items so as far as multiple answers i i think um, death to, to multiple answers is it would be a heresy. And I think um, much like any of these discussions, everyone probably has some more emotional reaction to to the statement, right? They're either in favor of it or against it. But I think it's helpful to think about what should be the goals of making a decision on a change or not a change, right? So when we talk about push button, we would try to think of what are the gains from having jumping a jump seat equipment versus push button, and then what would be the gains from push button, and you would make that decision. And so if someone someone just saying like, oh, I really like jumping, well, that doesn't help you make the decision, right? Because that's not saying it meets a certain goal or like it would be different if you're stating that I think it is a tool in recruitment because of X, right? So similar with multiple answers, um, like I wouldn't want to get rid of them and I see logistical problems to getting rid of them, but there are things that I would like to do with multiple answers like um, move them to be a subtype under interrogatives. So however many interrogatives there can be in a quiz, if it's like nine to 14, well, if randomly multiple answers come up, they just fall under that heading, right? And this is just like how a multiple answer chapter verse reference falls under a chapter verse reference type, which falls under a reference type for um, the question type requirements. And I think something similar for multiple answers makes a lot of sense because a CVRMA is really just a chapter verse reference and structure that happens to have more than one answer. And a multiple answer is just an interrogative and structure that happens to have more than one answer. But additionally, I think it's useful to ask the question, like, why do we have question types? And so I think it, it's definitely to test the material in different ways because you can't test all of the material in exactly the same way grammatically. But I think it also adds an element of fun, right? So by moving multiple answers under interrogatives, you are making it, you are not guaranteeing any amount of pure multiple answers in a quiz, right? And maybe that is deemed to be less fun. And to the point that like, eh, maybe quizzers will study less. And so we like having a guaranteed one, two or three multiple answers. Um, so that it is a motivation to study for that type, right? And that to me, that's a useful conversation because then we're discussing like, what are the point of having different question types at all and different um, minimums and maximums in a quiz? Like, what's the point of this? And does removing or keeping multiple answers meet those goals that we have for question types? Yep. Do you want to jump in on multiple answers before I hit XYZs? No, I mean, you pretty much summed it up. I mean, from my perspective, I really like multiple answers um, because of the variety. I think the variety in question type is is potentially a good thing. I've, I've quizzed in programs that have had far, far fewer uh, question types in terms of variety. And it feels, I mean, it's, it's a good pro, they're good programs, but it feels just ever so slightly less interesting, slightly more boring. So I think there's some study opportunities around multiple answers. 
answers. Um, I think there's less of that now because of our type distribution. So I'd like to see that corrected at some point in the future. But I, I generally like how multiple answers are structured. I agree with you. I think they, they should be a subtype under interrogative. It makes way more sense that way. Um, I would also be in favor of the idea of almost having like a matrix, right? So you've got, you know, reference yes or no, uh, and then multiple answer yes or no, uh, and with interrogatives being on the other side, right? So like, it's almost like I would want to see a certain number of multiple answer questions in a quiz, but they don't necessarily have to be interrogative multiple answers or reference multiple answers just to ensure that there's some there. There's all kinds of creative ways to go about doing it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know. I think I'm babbling. I like multiple answers, but I, I think the way they are right now in the rule book, they're they're sort of they don't serve a lot of purpose. They don't have a lot of value, I guess. Sure, sure. And I would definitely say you're babbling if you want to recombine plain multiple answers and reference multiple answers again. Well, what do you mean combine? I mean. Like it, it's it's effectively saying like let's say you have interrogatives and reference and those are the the primary types right but then you have to say well there is at least some number of multiple answers that you need to have in a quiz right um, it doesn't have to be significant or you just do away with the multiple answer type entirely and just I don't know it's hard for me to to see how one side makes it's hard for me to see how the reference side of the equation versus the non-reference side of the equation makes a difference right i mean they're very different right i'm not saying an interrogative multiple answer is the same as a reference multiple answer they're very very different right um but it's i'm struggling to see like why we would have a differentiation on one side of that equation but not the other well right now we have a differentiation on one side and not the other and i would want to end that yeah. Uh, yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Right. Anyway, and so, I just, so let, yeah, but let, let's uh, talk about XYZs. Cause I know you're passionate about XYZs <laughs> or, passionate or passionate, XYZs. Ag passionate against XYZs is probably a better way of saying it. <laughs> Cause I think a lot of the competitive structure of quizzing of team quizzing, especially is very elegant, right? You have three teams of four quizzers. Um, if a quizzer airs, that whole team has to sit out and then at a certain number of airs, it's negative points. And then at the end of a quiz, um, there's automatic um, negative points and um, the A and B notion, right? So you can't just have an error advance you right to the next question number. And, like, if you look across, like, international's prelims for decades, I would expect that you see very similar scores. And this is when the qual overall quality of the quizzers probably changes, the overall difficulty of the material changes. There's probably going to be a million other variables as far as, like, question set difficulty, right? Um, or quiz master ability. I, you know, there, there could be a myriad other things that are variables. But yet, scores are fairly consistent. Um, and I think that's because of the team structure that kind of ensures a certain number of correct questions a quiz. Accuracy kind of hovers around 55% in internationals. And um, I think it's all pretty elegant. Um, and then you have XYZs, which could not be less elegant, where we just say we've had 12 prelims and we don't think it's enough. And so we're going to have a 13th prelim where if your team's um, 10 through 15, you should just try to win as many jumps as you can and hope you get lucky. because You need to score more to overtake team 789. And so you like you just completely change the incentives where it's like normally if you have a one point quiz that like hurts you for the rest of prelims, you know? Um, but in XYZs, if you have a one point quiz and your team 10 through 15, it, it doesn't hurt you in the slightest, like nothing counts for individual averages. And you like, you can drop spots in the consolation bracket, which I'm sure none of the teams in, like seeding in the consolation bracket, no one cares about, but the possibility of squeaking into top nine is like a giant, um, reward. And so you have teams 10 through 15 winning tons of jumps at really, really fast and bad speeds. So it's, I bet you if you asked every one of those coaches and quizzers, they would say like, if this was any of the first 12 prelims, or at least maybe any of the first 11, like there's no way we would jump like this. We know it's dumb in the long run, but be, in this case, we have no downside. And so the incentives are just so bad, which is why I hate XYZs. You just, you take teams seven, eight, nine, and you put them in a crazy bind where, um, they have to protect their, 
what they've done over 12 prelims, but they're doing it against teams that have no downside. And that sucks to me. Yeah. Well, I think, I think your, one of your comments sums it up just perfectly and very eloquently. Why do we think that 12 prelims is not enough, but one more prelim, a 13th prelim is enough, right? That that's kind of the, the, the weird thing. Like, like over 12 prelims, we think we haven't, we don't, quite have enough quizzes to map things out, but we're going to do a 13th prelim with vastly different incentives. And that's going to actually fix the problem, right? That just seems weird to me. Like, why not just add more prelim quizzes and sort out the top nine? And then that way, you know, you're, you're, you're still dealing with the the right level of competition there. Right. And I think like some of the, like the idea is wonderful because it's like, oh, Whatever you've done over 12 prelims, you get to keep it. So we're just going to add this 13th prelim to like what you've already done. We're not going to make you start at zero. And we're going to let like the top six teams and then 16th on, like they're out of it. So it's the teams that are like more, like they're closely grouped competitively. So like all of that idea is great, but then you just throw them into this one quiz that has really terrible incentives. And I'm not sure that there's a good way to do it, but I can see like the bones of the motivation were good. Because if at the end of the day, like getting since getting into top nine, the difference between ninth and tenth is huge. You want those teams to have to prove it against very similarly strengthed teams. Um, but X Y Z is just not a good way to do it. Um, and I mean, currently among prelims, I would bet that those final few prelims are viewed somewhat similarly to X Y Z's by the teams that are in spots. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, right? But it is different in that this was just how you were randomly seated. And this is how it shakes out. Um, and I, I think, I mean, I hate to say this out loud, but I would bet you that the teams that are 10th and down in prelims 11 and 12 really should heavily employ the strategy that they would employ in XYZs in those final prelims. <laughs> you know? Yeah, probably. Because yeah. they're in essence the same thing, um, especially if you need to make up um, any more than six or eight points um, over those final two prelims. This means you have to average an average of three or four points above what you have currently averaged. Like that's a massive, massive change. So like you would be going for broke. You're like, I need to win 12 jumps in this quiz and just hope we get some key stuff. Um, and I don't like that, that um, incentive structure. And I think it is just by nature, it's going to be there, right? If um, it's going to be there in finals, if, the other teams have a win and you're at question 10 of the third quiz and you have zero points where you're like, well, I mean, I got to win to like keep alive. So I should probably try to win every jump. And like, yeah, that's true. And so you find all these like really micro places where these bad incentives exist. But XYZ is different in that. Like we have intentionally designed something and know that it has these awful incentives. Whereas, you know, in a very specific scenario of inter of internationals finals or the very end of prelims, you might have a six to eight question sequence that has the same incentives. But to me, that's a, that's pretty different. Yeah, indeed. Well, so, you know, one heresy I love to bring up, it's one of my personal favorite heresies, uh, is death to zeros. Um, so this is where, you know, you get a question, right? You get 20 points, uh, you uh, quiz out, you get your 20 points plus an additional 10 points. Everything seems to have a number of points on it with a zero on the end. And it it's, they're, they're superfluous. They're, they, they don't actually do anything for you. Um, so my proposal is, which is, you know, I'll, I'll throw it into the, you know, bucket of this is a heresy, uh, because whenever I talk about this, people who've been in quizzing for a while, they, they're kind of like, ooh, ooh. And I'm like, why are you saying ooh? But get rid of the zeros. Instead of 20 points, you get two. If you, you know, you get a bonus question, you get an extra one point, right? Well, I mean, instead of 10, you get, uh, you get one, really, that kind of thing, right? Uh, you can quiz out with a perfect nine, right? What's what's the difference between a nine and a ninety? Uh, it's just extra zeros. They fill up space. Um, they they use up more space on on printer paper. So so we're killing trees. They they use more printer ink. Um, they use more pixels on the screen. Uh, it's just a waste. Um, so let's get rid of them. Yeah, and this is. I mean, I think the the upsides here are. I mean, it's generous to call them micro upsides, but um, <laughs> I know I know that when I bring up, ah, well, ten just ten and ninety just feel better than one and nine, 
your response is always, well, why not make it a thousand and nine thousand then? Which, I mean, I guess you could just go the other direction and take it to the extreme to prove that point. But I would simply just say um, what we've had is kind of like this nice, warm, happy medium, and we don't gain anything by changing. I, I think you gain those micro things, right? You gain a little bit more screen real estate, a little bit less printer ink, a little bit less paper printed. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. It's you, The gains are, to call them micro is probably an exaggeration of their size, um, but there is some gains to be had. I think it's really more... I, obviously, this is not something I'm terribly passionate about for real. I just like to bring it up because, and repeatedly bring it up and beat the dead horse over and over again, because I think it's it's a perfect example of a quizzing heresy, because like it feels wrong, but if we were starting from scratch, we wouldn't add the zeros. And I am inclined to agree. <laughs> All right. So the next one we've been talking about, this might be a heresy that we don't like. Um, actually, I'm pretty sure it isn't, but, um, or no, let me, it is. Let me say that again. I'm pretty sure this is a heresy that we will not like. How's that? Um, and that is not announcing question types. So Scott, you were the one who, who heard this or experienced this. So can you talk about this for a little bit? Yeah. And to be fair, this was a single person. Um, it was not it was not any more than one person, but it was, um, it was voiced, displeasure was voiced at how fast the jumping was getting at internationals. And the idea was floated as one way to slow that down would be to not announce question types. And so, um, now I think that this is pretty misguided because no one is deciding to jump for the most part, no one is deciding to jump fast just because they like jumping fast. Um, probably 95% of teams and quizzers are jumping fast because they have deemed it the best way to, well, I mean, you can say jump fast. They have, they have decided to jump at a speed that they have deemed to be the best way to score points and win quizzes. And that is everybody's goal. And if that happens to be at two syllables and you as an individual wish it was at three and a half syllables, well, you kind of need to dig into other structure of quizzing, either it be um, increasing the points for an error or something to make questions more difficult, right? So purely winning the jump was less of a factor in getting it right. Um, those are different ways to probably slow down jump speeds if that is your desire. But this individual's idea was to not announce question types. And the very quick question was, well, what do you do with like... Um, According to John chapter 1 verse 4 or quote John chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 or I need to know who said it. Um, and the response was, well, that just becomes part of the question. And so the quizzer kind of, they can't know what's coming. And so they can't, basically you get rid of syllable jumping because the quizzer has to spend a, a beat like realizing what type is even being talked about. Um but to me, it just seems like, I mean, it would slow down jumping, um, but it would, it's just kind of a misguided idea that almost like, no, everyone was kind of like, this is not a very smart idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm interested about the idea that fast jumping is bad. Um, and I, I mean, I, I personally don't agree with that, right? Like the speed of jumping is going to modulate based on a number of variables, but ultimately like quizzers aren't going to want to jump too fast, quote unquote, right? What is, what does too fast mean, right? Too fast means I can't get the question correct above a certain per percentage, right? Like you don't want to jump so slow that you are guaranteed to get the question correct all the time because you won't be able to win the jump. You have to risk something, right? So you can't jump at a speed where you're going to get the question correct 100% of the time. Rather, you need to jump at a speed where, you know, and, and where is that dial going to be set, right? It's going to be based on a lot of different factors, but maybe you decide that you want 80% right? Whatever number that happens to be, right? So you crank up your speed until you get 80% accuracy on your jumps or whatever that number is, right? You, you pick a number based on your strategy. That, no, that, that speed is based on a number of factors that are beyond, like, like it, it seems I, 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 I'm struggling to sort of articulate 
the idea of why is that bad, right? Why is jumping, can there be such a thing as too fast, right? I'm remembering, you know, as a practical example, I'm remembering a particular question in a particular quiz of finals at internationals where the quiz master, uh, I believe it was an interrogative. Um, she called the, the question type, said it was interrogative and then paused and there was a jump. And it turns out that she was beginning to form a mouth shape. And now I was in the audience. Um, I think it was like in the first or second row or something. And like, I could, I thought it was going to be a foul. Like I was, I was sure like, okay, that's a pre-jump. That's going to be a foul. But it turns out she was actually in, in the beginnings of forming a mouth shape and somebody jumped. And I was thinking like, there's no way this person is going to, you know, get the jump. Uh, and he got it perfectly. Um, he answered the question absolutely perfectly. It was, I think it was interrogative and I was just blown away. And I remember tweeting in that moment. I was like, I have absolutely no idea how he answered that question, but kudos for him for being able to do it. Right. Um, for whatever, for whatever reason, like he got enough from the mouth shape to be able to narrow down exactly when the material, where the question was from and was able to recite the material word perfect and get the question correct. Well, that's awesome. I, I don't think that's a bad thing. That's, that's amazing. And the fact, it, you know, the idea of saying, well, that's bad. We want to slow this down so other people can have an opportunity to jump. I'm like, well, no, actually the fact that this quizzer prepared that much, studied that hard and was able to get that question correct, um, is an awesome thing, right? Like we don't want to level the playing field there. We want to celebrate the, the level of, you know, focus and prep work that that quizzer put into, you know, that, that particular meet. Right. So I think that brings up a great point, which is some people might say jumping that fast is like removing opportunity from everybody else. But if you change the structure, then you remove the reward from, um, you remove the reward that someone can get from working hard enough to jump at that speed and get correct questions. And so that's why, like, you may hear um, Quizmasters say, like, oh, I like I don't want to call an error on this, or I ruled correct so I would feel bad, like, accepting a challenge to switch it to incorrect. And my response is always, like, at the end of the day, we are trying to make the correct ruling. And if you feel bad calling an error, it's, it's not affecting that single quizzer who would have that error called on them. It's affecting everyone else in the quiz. Um, and it's negatively affecting them if you make the wrong call. And, and that's, I think, something that people don't realize, right? If a quizzer actually didn't get it right and you just want to call them right because it feels good and you think it's nicer to that quizzer, like that's a disservice to every other competitor in that quiz and every other competitor at the meet because you're changing, you're changing standards on the fly. And I think people don't think about that. Yeah, very true. Well, and, we don't um, have a ton of well, time left. Well, sorry, go ahead. I was going to add two more things on the like desire to jump slower. I think some people um, think that having more of the question read is a better thing. I don't want to put words in people's mouth to say like why specifically they think it is better, but I think that that is a sentiment. And I am definitely cynical, but I think that this the gripe about jumping being too fast, it, it was raised by someone from a relatively less competitive district. And I think, you know, that is probably a driver of it, just wishing that um, the jump speeds were slower so that they could compete. But unfortunately, that is not how anything is set up <laughs> by design. Right, right. Well, we're, we are, you know, uh, a little bit short on time. We're probably not going to be able to get through our entire list of heresies, but in the list that we have left, is there any that, that particularly speak to you, Scott? Um, sure. So one, and I, I don't know if this is a heresy cause I don't know how widely it's held. I know it's held a non-zero number of times, but it's that quiz masters should read fast to get out more material. And this goes along with another heresy you have listed, which is errors are bad for quizzing. So I think there is a desire among some quiz masters and maybe other people that if a quiz master reads faster, um, and I'm not saying inconsistent, I'm just saying faster all the time, then on average they get out more material, which means more correct questions for the quizzers, which is good. And I think all of that is a heresy. It's like, well, I, as you defined it, heresy doesn't have to be a bad thing. Um, and I think that it does qualify as a heresy, but I also think that that is a, a terrible viewpoint to take. 
Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think um, I used to be one of those quiz masters years ago that that actually was. I would speak very quickly. I mean, I tend to speak very quickly when I'm just talking anyway, regardless. But when I'm in, you know, sitting as a quiz master, I would read, I think, faster than I should. Uh, because generally speaking, we read things faster than we would normally talk about them anyway, right? So it's very easy to kind of fall into that sort of situation. And especially if you're a quiz master with, you know, some advanced teams, you know, at, at an advanced level of quizzing. Uh, you know, those teams are operating very quickly. So, and there's a certain, um, energy in the room, in the space. And that certainly contributes to a quiz master's, you know, sort of pacing and their energy level. If they're not paying attention, they can sort of get jazzed by the energy in the room and kind of speed things up. You know, if a quizzer answers a, you know, a, a quote these two verses question in seven seconds, they're going to be talking very quickly. And it's, you know, it takes discipline for a quiz master to then, okay, now I'm back to my normal pace that I was talking before, right? That's, that's hard to do. Um, but it's a, a vastly better thing to do that than to allow yourself to be drawn into rapid speaking. Because again, you want to provide the opportunity for those quizzers who have put in more memorization time, more prep time to be able to differentiate themselves from quizzers who haven't put in quite as much time uh, preparing, uh, quite as much time practicing. You want to reward the folks that have memorized better, right? Or memorized more and, and more accurately. And the way you do that is by metronomic, not terribly fast reading pace. Yep. And I think people don't think about like, oh, that is my desire. Like, like or that should be my desire is to reward the people that like have worked the hardest and can execute and deserve the most, right? There's some idea that errors feel bad and we don't want people to be erring because then they would feel bad or lose motivation or, um, and I, I don't think that those things are true. I think the structure is built in so that if you work harder, better, smarter, and then execute better than somebody else, like you will score more. Um, and I, I think it sucks if, people introduce their own structure that reduces from that. Um, I do think there are things that would be bad, right? Like um, writing questions that are just so difficult that very few quizzers can get them. Like that would be demotivating, right? Like I, we don't need to write every interrogative that requires four verses worth of material. You know, th that is a case where it's not like the errors per se that would be the bad thing, but it's just that it's not motivating. It's not like what anyone's expecting. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't fit with anything, but it's not again that like the error specifically is what's bad. And it's not necessarily that the correct question is what's good. It's just that the reward is going to someone that like has done more. Right. Indeed. Well, any, any others on this list you want to hit? Um, well, we can hit the Not all verses are spiritually significant one. Do you want to introduce that one? Yeah, and we kind of talked about this before, you know, in the in the, with the rulebook project. But the the idea is that um, some people have remarked that uh, every verse in the Bible is spiritually significant as a way to sort of get around the idea that not all verses are good verses for quote and finish question types. And so ultimately the idea, and this may just be come down to a way that we're describing it with language. Um, but there is, I think a, a bit of a heresy when somebody says not all verses in the Bible are quote unquote, spiritually significant in the sense of what that two word phrase means in the context of quizzing. Right. And so it's, it's, we're not making any absolute statement here, but um, we had to make definitions for quizzing or someone did at some point in time. And to me, the very fact that they said like for, for a verse to be used on a finisher or a quote, it must be spiritually significant or stand on its own. Well, no one's writing that in there unless they think it applies to less than hundred percent of the verses. Um, otherwise they just wouldn't write it in there. Now, sure. You can like have discussions on, is that 90% of the verses? Is that 2% of the verses? Might this vary by like narrative versus epistle? And I think those are all like really interesting conversations to have. But at the end of the day, like if you're going to say like, well, every verse is spiritually significant, then you're just being myopic and not like reading the point of what the rule book is even trying to do. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think that that's a very myopic point to take, but I also think it's useful to have the discussion of 
what do what is the goal of these specific question types, right? The finish end quote and then their subtypes. Because I think actually at a district level versus an interdistrict level, the goals are very different and probably should lead to very different um, requirements for those question types. But we have very few large like specifications of what's different between um, internationals and a district because the way that the rulebook is written is it's for everyone, but you can override it at the district, but people rarely do. So it kind of is like it's for everything. Um, so it's, you can see where there's problems. But I definitely would be largely in favor of clear requirements for finish and quote questions that are different for a district meet than for an interdistrict meet. That, of course, everyone at the district level is still free to override. But I think it would provide better guidance of, like, what's the goal, right? Because I think at the district level, it is acknowledging that not everyone is going to memorize the whole material. And we want to direct you towards um, hand-picked verses that we think are really important. And we're going to promise you some question types on them. And I think that that's a great goal. And if that's the goal, it shouldn't be on every verse. It probably shouldn't even be on anything over 50% of the verses. And you should take a lot of care when selecting them for those question types. But at internationals, um, you would have a different assumption, right? Like it could be that most people have memorized all the material. And maybe you just want to test their overall material knowledge using these two types. But neither of those things are stated as being like different or desired to be different or any of that. Um, and so currently it's just in the rule book, but then often not followed even at an interdistrict meet, which leads to missed expectations. And I think that there's um, a lot of negatives currently with it that could pretty easily be improved. Yeah, indeed. Well, we do have a few more heresies on our list that we do not have time to get to. Maybe we'll uh, pick those up next episode. If you have any particular quizzing heresies that you are thinking of that we didn't get to, please email us. Um, and if you disagree with anything that we've said, uh, please email us. And if you just want to share some ideas about quizzing with us, um, please do so as well. Email us at iq at cbqz.org. You can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter account is at Inside Quizzing. And uh, Scott and I lurk in Slack, uh, pretty much daily in the uh, Inside Dash uh, quizzing uh, channel on Slack. There, so if you uh, join up to Slack and chat in the channel, we'll probably get around to answering you pretty quickly and engage in dialogue and so forth on all kinds of topics related to quizzing and quizzing them. And so, with that, I will say thank you all for listening, and thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, Griffin. For-